What can I say about my next guest? Pioneer, legend, artist. He's Bam of the legendary Jungle Brothers, and I want to welcome him to the library with Tim Einico. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. Um, so, I wanted. What's interesting is I was reading up on you, and I and I and I read about your high school, and not just that you went there. You know, the Jungle Brothers went there. Just you read it's like X Clan's brother Jay went there. Q Tip went there. Ali Shaheed Muhammad went there. Uh, what was it about? What, what, what was in the water of your high school that kind of birthed these these? I mean, yourself, these legends uh, in the in artists. Mike G went there. John Leguizamo went there. Uh, I think it was the location. You know, Murray Bertram one, is right near One Police Plaza, right by the Brooklyn Bridge. So it's kind of central for people coming out from the different boroughs. You know, I don't know why. I, I think it was also the timing, too, where hip-hop culture was at at that time. It was starting to spread through records to the f- five boroughs as well. And it was having, like, a a new, new birth c- mm. coming. So as we were coming of age, that was just, like, something to do, you know? So we kind of made those relationships based on school and music. Did the high school itself, did it kind of... Murray Bertram was a high school for business. So it wasn't really like, it wasn't fostering the arts? No, it wasn't fostering the arts. I mean, it was a TV production class. um, And there were talent shows and variety shows, but it wasn't a music and art school or a performing arts school. Um, I'm going to fast. In 1988... uh, Straight Out the Jungle came out, your debut album. Uh, it Takes a Nation of Mil- Millions to Hold Us Back came out. Straight Out Com- Compton came out. The Great Adventures of Slick Rick came out. Uh, Critical Beat, came- Beat-, Beat Down came out. EPMD Strictly Business came out. All right, so that's just the year. That just the name few, right? Right. Uh, when you were when you guys were creating your debut album, did you, were you aware of what? What's happening around you in terms of what artists were about to drop new albums or debut albums, so to say? Did you, I'm not, not, did you care, so to say? Uh, did you see it as a, maybe like a friendly competition? Uh, was it that, were you guys that aware of what was happening around you or what was, how big of a year 1988 was going to be? Yeah, because like I said, it was a coming of age year. You know, we had the first generation of pioneers that were doing all the, community work, the block parties in the neighborhood, in the Bronx. And then you had the, I would call like the intermediate era of like the guys making the records and the music videos like Run DMC and the Fat Boys um, and UTFO, Houdini. So, and then you had the mix shows where we heard those records and you had the boombox and the cassette where you were taping those records, and that was your zone, you know? So you stayed up to date from the mix shows on the latest records that were coming out, you know? So, like I said, in the first generation, you staying up on where the parties and the jams are in the community, but when artists started making records or becoming artists and making records, you went to the mix shows, and you started getting up on those records. And those albums came out in 1988, but it was one 12-inch at a time. Right. So that kind of started in, like, 85, 86, 87. You know, so you could feel, if you was in the zone, 
you could feel what was going on. You had your finger on the pulse, and you was hitting the composition notebook with your pen and pad, you know, writing and making, you know, music, collecting some beats and stuff like that, and just participating. How did you know... You 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 know you you come from a school where you had to be different, right? You had to. You didn't follow what was happening. Uh, I think right. like DMC says everyone's you know like public enemy's doing red, we're doing green type right, of stuff. Right. Um, how did who taught you or how did you guys know that you had to be with all this coming out and all these you know how did you, you had to be different? Part of it comes from you just as a writer. You you have you put your you have your perspective, and as a writer, you that perspective is is what's giving you your material, and then you start to develop and conceptualize uh, what your songs want your songs are going to be about, what the album's going to be called, naming the group, naming yourself, you know, and that's what kind of it's just, it's an organic process, you know, to to become unique. And come into your own, as we say. Um, during the recording of Straight Out of the Jungle, um, Q-Tip was a part of that recording because he recorded on Black is Black. Uh, he, were, I think he said it was his first time in a recording studio. Uh, what stands out to you most about those recording sessions? And if, uh, so to say, if I was asked Q-Tip what he remembers most, what do you think he would say? If you ask Q-Tip what he remembered most. Yeah, like maybe what he took away. What I can tell you what I remember most. Because I spent about a year and a half working on music in my living room, DJing, because I got turntables um, in my second year in high school before I met Mike. So I was working on what I thought was going to become a record. So I would just come home after school, backspin breaks, record and make make tapes, record my rhymes onto the tapes, make pause tapes. And the first time I went in the studio where we made Straight Out the Jungle, I was able to carry on with that process, which I thought was cool because they had drum machines, they had keyboards, they had a little four-second sampler, and all of that stuff was new to me and I, I had a little Dr. Rhythm drum machine and I had a Casio keyboard but I wasn't working with MIDI or Simpty or you know playing well enough to go straight to tape you know in a couple of takes so I wanted to use the tools that I was more familiar with to get comfortable with making the records the way I wanted to in the studio and they had turntables in there which went straight into the board into the uh, 16 track machine and I was able to punch in and piece together my loops that way. So most of Straight Out the Jungle was made off the turntables, which I thought was really cool because it was like, you know, DJing. Right. You know, that's the organic way. That's the way, you know, you're basically doing the way you do it at a block party. You're doing it in the studio, only you're making your record. You know, so that was one memorable moment that stood out to me um, with regard to Black is Black the demo that Q-Tip presented to me that we recreated in the studio. That one, we did use a drum machine, but we kind of merged the two processes of like going straight to tape off the turntable 
and then also playing the beats live and the samples live from the drum machine because they haven't worked out how to do Simpty quite yet. So, And we didn't want it to just feel like um, this mechanical, on-the-grid rhythm. We right. wanted it to feel like live. So, you know, I remember me and Q-Tip doing a few takes of playing the hi-hats down, you know, and then doing a few takes of playing the drums down, punching in on that, you know, until we had, you know, five minutes worth of recorded instrumental and then go in the booth and do the vocals over that. So, again, that organic process is what was more, most memorable to me. What was your initial... You talked to some people about the idea of, like, punching in, right? And, yeah. Uh, um, I remember talking to uh, Torre about creating an album, and he said, with Premiere, and he said the biggest surprise he ever had was that Premiere likes to punch in. Like, he doesn't... Premier doesn't mind punching in. Right. Uh, well, for you, what was your initial thoughts about the punch in? Uh, was it like a, did you, did you put your way of it or did you not really care? Or did you like. The one thing it? I like about recording in the studio with the first album is that we had two mics in the vocal booth. And the process was we used to write all our rhymes first, go over them on the phone, Mike and I memorize them and then go in the studio and record our vocals at the same time. And Mike always wanted to just go straight through, like, which I love is because it's like you, we, we have a stage chemistry that was captured in that booth where we could just look at each other and alter things as we're recording down mm. or know what he's going to do next or give him, give him something to vibe off of. And, um, Sometimes we would try to use that technique, but Mike would be just like, let's just go through it a few times until we get it. And that always worked, you know, two, you know, two or three times of doing two verses each back to back, bragging and boasting, you know, that was just a couple of takes live, you know, I think towards the end of the project, we got more familiar with the punch in like with a uh, girl, I house you. And we were also overdubbing the vocals so for the chorus, Girl, I House You. So you had to keep going back right. and open up another track, say the same words again, because that's the hook. And so well, my verse, I think my verse was broken into like three parts for punching in because I was overdubbing, you know, and it's just the way it worked out. I mean, I didn't make a hard rule about punching in or not punching in, but we come from that jam era when you jam out and you get what you get. <laughs> um, like I said, Black is Black was uh, released or created in 1988. Uh, and I think um, prior to the interview, I was telling you, you know, 88, I was whatever, fourth grader probably at the time. Right. Um, what was going on in hip hop at the time, but also what was going on in kind of American culture at the time that kind of inspired this track to be made? Black is Black is a key track because I feel like, no, I, I know from my studies, 88 was like a transition. So you had our parents that went through the civil rights era and all of that memorabilia, psyche, 
way of thinking, mentality, whatever you want to call it, that was in the household with us, as we were growing up. Mm-hmm. Even though we, this is the 70s now and the civil rights movement was kind of waning a bit. And then by the time you get to the 80s, you've got hip-hop culture for our peer group. And it just opens the door to a new landscape of creativity. Um, drawing from some of the records from the 60s, adding your own twist on it by looping it or taking one part of it, putting your bragging and boasting lyrics that you heard like from Run DMC type style or Cold Crush Brothers. Um, but then there was like the subject black is black, which goes back to the civil rights era. And you remember certain things from when you were growing up. So you're like, hey, my rap could be about this, you know, where it evolved to. It moved further and further away from that. But it was nice at the time to have that as a part of it, like Melly Mel's The Message, you know, because crews were battling for prize money or representing themselves to hold it down and have their reputation and you know they were getting more innovative with the lyrics and the routines and stuff like that and then Melly Mel does the message and is like wait he's speaking to the society about the world what's going on you can do a record like that you know and um, KRS-One documented the early days of hip hop in the record South Bronx so it's like you can make a record that's like a documentary. So there was all these open ways of doing things. That's why it's called the golden era. And all those names you listed had their own take because the new, it was a new landscape opened up. So it was like, hey, I want to build a house like this. I want it to look like a dome. Oh, I want it to look like this, you know, like a pyramid. Oh, I want it to be a skyscraper. You know, everybody had they, their own vision. Mm-hmm. Do you think that's the, do you think, that's the role of hip hop to be this voice that you know voice for the people or do you think it people kind of put too much weight on what the responsibility of hip hop is supposed to be i mean this like you know socially conscious uh voice i think at the time because hip hop was just in a certain circle in a certain community it gave that community a voice not as a out of like, hey, you want to become a hip part of hip hop? You want to be an MC? Here's the training program. You got to speak about the things that we talk about in the neighborhood. No, it was just this is your peer group. Most of us were teenagers, so we was putting people up on what we was going through, what we were seeing, the new slang, the new clothes, or the new beats, or stories we wanted to tell. You know, a lot of hip-hop was storytelling, too. Right. So, but when it moved more closer, or rather when the mainstream moved closer to it, first through journalists and academics and photographers who saw the scene and saw the craft and looked at it as an art, they started wording things in a certain way that their readers and viewers and listeners could relate to mm. like to people who were not from the scene and as we move into the 90s that was kind of like the story that went along with the campaign for your album because now hip hop is going national and 
radio stations and video stations. They're like, what's my tip sheet? What do I say on camera or on the mic about Tupac? All right. Um, he's from Descendant of the Black Panthers. He's revolutionary. He's talking about teenage pregnancy and Brenda's got a baby. You know, whereas he covered a lot of topics, but they would bring that one up because that was like in the current events. All right covered from other journalists and i think that's what gave hip-hop that kind of stigma for a while that oh you're the voice of the people you have to speak responsibly you know because these other factions were listening listening in to learn and get something out of it you know because they weren't a part of it the original community that was doing it and now do you think it's I mean, what is it? What, what, what do you think the, the, the what's the journalist's kind of storyline for, I guess, hip-hop now? I mean, is it more about like, I feel like it's more like a business uh, mindset, so to say? Well, creatively, it's like I said, hip-hop grew more branches. So there wasn't going to be one totalitarian way for all artists forever to come to just do it in that format. Obviously, we've had Crunk, we've had Miami Bass, we've had Trap, we've had hip-hop with mixed with R&B, we've had funk with hip-hop, we've had party records, we've had socially conscious records, we've had Trap House records, you know, talking about the Trap House. There's all these subcultures in different regions around the world, really, but let's just stick with America, mm. around the country, where everybody's got a different way that they were brought up, and they want to speak about that in their music. So that's the creative side of it. The business side of it is, going back to the 90s, when I said it started to get more mainstream attention and more corporate investment, they were just looking at the numbers and going, well, which records are selling, which message is selling the most? Right. And which one is the most formulaic? Because that's the one that we could put our money into and it will stay stable long enough for us to increase our profit margins. And that was gangster rap. Because they would see in these zip codes like in the suburbs of Arizona, Phoenix, Arizona, or St. Louis, or Ohio, they would see, well, wait a minute, that's not the Bronx, and there's a lot of records being sold there. Yeah. What kind of record is it, you know? And it would usually be like gangster rap, you know, Ice Cube, you know, so then they just started to pattern find groups that were making those kind of records and that's how you got a whole lot of gangster rap that went we went through a whole gangster rap era you know until people started to go in different direction so that's that's my answer for the creative side and for the business side uh, i want to turn to uh obviously you guys done so much in your careers and you've also worked with so many engineers producers mm. uh i think one producer one engineer slash producer that really stands out to me is uh bob power right uh you talk to anybody about him it's like you know it's 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 just a, an amazing experience in terms of working with him yeah uh what do you remember about working with bob on your third album uh, i'm a big health guy right now 
And the one thing that I remember about Bob, sometimes I think about him when I'm doing my 10-kilometer run in the morning. He was a cyclist. He would come to the studio with his bike. He was His fitness levels were high. His tolerance was high. His aesthetic was high. And he knew how to merge aesthetics from music that was outside of hip-hop in an organic way with hip-hop. So he really had like an ear for those hybrid things. But his per, per him personally, sometimes I would see his personal lifestyle, you know? Mm. And I go, oh, this guy's interesting. He's not like a rock and roll engineer or or somebody just trying to figure it out, you know? He's got a a drill. He's got a, he's got a flow, you know? And... Yeah, that was one. I never said that to him, but that was one of the things that would be on my mind when we sitting at the boards together working on music. It's like you come from a place that developed, and you you've developed into bar powers, and I can see that. That's what I'm looking at. What's your life like? Where did you come from? You know what I mean? Because he was he was to put it in business, if you want to call it that. He was a great asset to hip hop culture, you know, because a lot of a lot of engineers, you'd be in the studio, they wasn't getting it. They didn't understand why a hip hop record could just be on two channels with vocals next to it. You know, I had some hip hop engineers tell me that. You know, brand newbies, they just got like the beat on one track and a bass line, and then they go in the booth and they do their vocals, and that's the record. You know, even when Run DMC, I mean, uh, yeah, made suck MCs. You know, they laid down Russell laid down the drum machine track. Run DMC did the vocals on top, as I understand, and then the engineer was like, "Great, we've tracked the drums and the vocals. Tomorrow, we're going to get the bass player in, the guitar and horns." And Russell was like, "No, no, no, that's it. That's the record." You know what I mean? I keep it simple. And it's like you don't want that kind of vibe in the studio where an engineer doesn't get it. And they're like looking at you the way IBM was looking at Bill Gates. Like what? Right. Micros, PCs. Why are people going to use, you know, you want the Bob Power vibe. Like, no, 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 I get it. I get what you guys are doing. I know how to make it reach a certain aesthetic. Hey, maybe do a little bit of this. Just give me a little bit more of that. Mm-hmm. You know, not change it, but just enhance it. When you think about a Bob Powers, but then you also think about, you know, the Jungle Brothers and and a lot of the um, DMC and Public Enemy and uh, what really stands out is that there's a they you've all kind of grown up on a diverse you know an array of uh, music genres. That was New York at the time. This is what I explain to people when I'm I travel a lot. And I always get the question, hey, where are you from? Because I make friends with people that don't know my, my group or I'm right. in a group. Hey, what, you know, hey, where are you from? Hey, where are you from? I'm like, I'm from New York. And then they go, oh, New York. But they think of the new New York. And I'm like, no, I'm from the old New York. Because as soon as they go, oh, New York, they go, oh, yeah, I've got friends in Williamsburg. Oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's <laughs> like, okay, Airbnb, hipsters, right, New York. Okay, that's the new New York. The old New York that I'm talking about is the New York that was Gotham City. Right. You know? So what I found out is that there was a lot of experimentation with music and an eclectic scene of music because 
all these venues where there was clubs and nightlife, the rent was cheap mm-hmm. because the city was broke. So if you owned a building and somebody said, hey, I want to make a club here and do what I want to do, just like, sure, just give me a cut. So there was a lot of experimentation. So you'd have one club that opened up with a rock band playing, and then after the band was done later in the night, a DJ would come on and play disco. You know, or you'd have like a punk rock night around at a club around the corner from NYU, and then Bam Bada would come in DJ as a part of that. You know, so then you had like Brian Eno, David Bowie, Blondie, Grandmaster Flash, Madonna, Beastie Boys, Rocksteady Crew. You see where I'm going yeah, with yeah. this? It's like people from different worlds coming together for this New York City nightlife that we all lived for and it was a lot going on and there was a lot of access to, you know, the Roxy's Studio 54 uh, the Rooftop which was up in the Bronx Latin Quarters to name a few clubs you know, the city had was full of nightlife and full of people from Europe coming over, we had New Wave come over, you know, we had a very eclectic mix of music, you know, Malcolm McLaren it was a, an eclectic mix of music. So at that time, it was really about rhythms. Herc was digging through the crates, finding breaks. He didn't really care if it was funk, soul, jazz. It was about the breaks because that was the part that people reacted to. And that was an eclectic mix of music within itself, you know, but it was about the jam. You know, New York City was about the jam, the deaf jam. <laughs> how do you think how, how how do you think how prevalent is that having that array of um musical influences or just hearing that sound uh important for just any artist to for and more important for artists with career longevity because i feel like today and i'm i sometimes hope it's not because i'm getting older but like you know I hear a beat and then the dj changes the beats and quote but i don't hear it but everyone else the younger crowd yeah. goes crazy as if you know something yeah. happened that I totally missed uh, but then I talk to people like no no don't worry you, you, didn't, miss, you didn't miss anything yeah well here's what happened here's the evolution I remember back in the day going and seeing bands in the park my aunt's boyfriend was in a band that would have been like Earth Wind and Fire or cooling the Gang they started in the park mm-hmm then you transition from going to see bands in the park, which is 10 people on, you know, in the band, three to 10 people, to just one DJ with a whole lot of speakers. And then you got the boombox, which is an extension of that. And so people have more time and more rhythms from the band to the DJ and from the boombox with the mixtapes. There was more time to get steeped into it, deep into it, and things lasted longer. Then the boombox became illegal. So you had the Walkman. So now you can't really spread what you're hearing. It's more about, and it's not about the group anymore, it's about the individual, what they're hearing. And then the Walkman went away, and the CD came. So then you're back. Now you're in the now everybody's driving cars and blasting music out the car, and then you get your cue from that. 
but it's still about the individual. And then that becomes illegal to play. You play your music loud, and then here comes the iPod. So you're back in your ear again. And then here comes iTunes, and it's like you don't even listen to a whole album. You just listen to one song. And that's kind of like where we're at. And then the, the, the laptops come out for the studio stuff. And it's like, it's too expensive to go in the studio. It's too expensive to buy a drum machine. And you could do more with a laptop. So, again, it's the individual. And you're not moving as much. So if we go back to the jam in the park and the jam with, with the band and the jam in the park with the DJ and then we move into the club, that's still large groups of people catching on to up right. getting their cues from other people and dancing and moving and, you know what I mean, and making making a scene. But the more you get into the technology part of it, where it's just for the individual, the less more people are involved. And because you're not moving as much, you do notice these little fine changes these little different bleeps from one trap record to the next or from one deep house record to the next, you know? But for us, we absorbed so much more rhythmically because we were out and about right. carrying the radio. We were out and about seeing live music. We were out and about in front of a big sound system where they playing Carlos Santana and then... Apache, and then a cool and a gang break, and then a funkadelic break, you know, like all that variety, you know, all that diversity, you know. So I think things just got narrowed down. And for the ears that were born into that more narrowed down version of the experience, of course, one bleep different. You're going to hear it. It's like going from a crowded space public space to being put in solitary confinement and it's like oh usually I hear doop and now it's doop see you know it's like because that's all you could hear and you could pick that out you know yeah I remember talking to uh, a guy I went to high school with but ended up being a producer and teaches music down in Atlanta yeah and he was saying his group of kids who were like high school maybe yeah. college he plays them a premiere beat, yeah. he plays them a Pete Rock beat, yeah. and they don't hear it. Yeah. They don't hear the difference. Yeah. And he kind of, that's like, he didn't realize that would have to be part of his class, is kind of explaining yeah. the difference between these two producers or their sounds. Sort of yeah. Which is kind of, for me, I mean, you hear Pete Rock beat or you hear premiere beat, you know the beats offhand, right? I mean, you know. Yeah, because we got familiar with the process. Right. You know, we, we heard that it was more loops. And then when it got to Premiere and Pete Rock, it was more chopped. Right. And then we heard, we knew some of the records they were chopping, so we knew how they were treating them differently. Right. But they don't have that context, you know? They didn't get the loops. They didn't get the records that we got from the loops, which came from the DJs at the block party, which came from the bands that were jamming out in the park. You know what I mean? They didn't get, it's just they've been cut off. They just got the. They just grew up with the internet, and they grew up with the technology of the software. You know, right. the auto tune, Fruity Loops versus Logic. You know, and they also play off of more of melody. Right. These music, you know, because of auto tunes, everybody can sing, so their songs are more melodic, and 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 it's more about the lifestyle. 
in the moment. All right. Uh, I want to turn to you guys are the the founding members of Native Tongues. Right. Um, just what was the for what was the original purpose of the supergroup, uh, and what impact did you want it to have on the culture? It was a collective. The early crews had collectives. That's what we learned. You know, you have a collective. You go out and you shut it down. You know, but that came about. Our collective came about organically, because Jungle Brothers were already doing their thing. Then we featured Q-Tip on the first album. Then we went and met De La Soul in Boston, and I introduced him to Q-Tip. And it, it was at that point, it was like a social thing. We all got along. Then De La invited us to do Buddy, and people started associating us already because we were building a scene from DJing at different parties, Milky Way, Payday. and uh, But then when we made that record in the video... More people got exposed, exposure to the fact that we were all associated together as a collective. And then, uh, we named it Native Tongues. Cube Tip and I named it Native Tongues. So, cause he was like, we need a name for the collective. And he was like, Native. And I was like, Tongue, cause we're speaking our own language. Right. So that solidified that collective. It was a loose collective. I, I want to I wanna say it's a loose collective. It was organic the mm-hmm. way it came together. You know, but the ball was rolling already for Jungle Brothers and Daylight and Q-Tip was coming up with Tribe Quest not too far behind. So it, 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 it happened out of just socializing and hanging out right. and DJing, and, which is cool. That's 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 a community. That's how you make a collective. Organic. It wasn't a super group like, say, what Chuck D and Be Real are doing. Right, right. You, you know what I mean? Well, it's like, hey, you know us for what we do in our groups. Now we're gonna do something else like that, but together. You right. know, it was more like we were sharing beats together. We was digging each other's music we were still creating the new stuff for ourselves and with each other you know there's a the, there's a reunion show coming up uh i think in dc correct 18th of, 18th of july uh, it's a native tongue festival fest- why uh why why the festival i guess now uh what can we expect from it well it's more like a tribute festival so it's like Whoever's down to come and participate doesn't have to be whole groups, as I'm understanding it. So there's Mace DJing, there's the Bush Babies, Dress from Black Sheep, Jungle Brothers, original Jungle Brothers whole group will be there. Uh, Red Alert, and loads of other names. So, yeah, I think it's like a one-off festival thing in D.C. I think it's good. It's a good start. Start of hopefully many, or um, many many shows together. Many. I, I like the I like the the festival model. I mean, we play a lot of festivals. I remember when f- festivals were actually were jams in America and free parties in England, right. and then they became shows 
in America and raves in England. Then there became concerts in America. And now we have EDM festivals. <laughs> it's like we caught up late. But, um, yeah, you know, Europe's been doing, we've been doing festivals in Europe since 88. And it's a different vibe from concert because it's outdoors. Mm -hmm. There's more stages. There's like three or four stages. You get a lot. It's like a, it feels like a jam. Right. You know, it feels like the jam, like back in the day. And I think that's a good condition to have to bring groups together and just go, yo, let's just rock out. I think when it gets in concert mode, it's like, I mean, festivals are business too, but when it's in concert mode, it's like even more corporate. You know, venues are owned nationally across. There's politics you have to deal with. You know, ticket sales, money, right. da 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 da, all the stuff that the jam doesn't have anything to do with. The jam is more like for the community. Showing up, we're setting up a sound system. Who's coming? You know what I mean? Is the live, you know, obviously the live show has, for artists now, have, has kind of become more important because they have to sell their merch there mm -hmm. uh, versus, you know, CD album sales, uh, now it's streaming sales. And obviously we know the numbers mm -hmm. behind streams doesn't give you crap. In terms right. Of, um, how has, uh, ha has that affected you at all? I mean, uh, in terms of like the importance of the live show, uh, or do you still approach it? the same way that you've always approached your live shows. Yeah, we've always been a live, predominantly live band, you know, like from day one because we grew up seeing the jam. We grew up seeing the block party. You know, we always, we, we rehearsed to come up with routines bef before we went in the studio, you know. And then you record them, you put them out, and then when you perform them live, it's just like the way you rehearsed it, you know. And we started off on an independent label, so they didn't have a big machine behind them to sell a gazillion records and pay us big royalties from sales. We always got our money from live. Everybody's like, oh, all the money is in live now. It's like it was always all in live <laughs> all the time because most artists, there's very few artists that were actually making profit off of the, the records that, that the record companies were putting out. Come on. They're getting 10% royalties, 16% royalties off of $10. You know, it's like, here, I'm going to make 10 and give you a buck. <laughs> Come on. TLC. Mm. Come on. Yeah. That's an extreme case. So it was always all about the live. And, you know, now that record sales are down, it's the new buzz story, you know. Oh, it's, yeah. Oh, live is where everything's at. And, you know, it's more driven towards that. And then you have companies that set up and they sign, you sign to those live companies and they're your record company. Right. Right. You know, just change the business model. So then it became more important to have merch. Hmm? 360. Yeah. And then the 360, 360 deals, yeah. you know, it was like, let's change the business model to cap, capture more of our profits from live endorsement deals, merch deals, sponsorship deals, all of those things that athletes used to get or MC Hammer used to get backlash from hip-hop for getting right. is built in now, you know? 
We're gonna get you, you know. We're gonna get this sneaker company to sponsor the tour. They're gonna throw in a hundred thousand. We're gonna get this energy drink to sponsor the tour. They're gonna throw in a hundred thousand. We're gonna get, you know, um, this video new video game Fortnite's gonna throw in X amount of money so they can have the rights to put it up on their video game in VR world, right. augmented reality world. You know, so out the gate with those three sixty deals, those companies are going to all those vendors and all those. You know, spot to for endorsement and sponsorship. You know, and so, yeah, it just becomes the big thing in the town. You know, but ain't nothing changed. It's it's always been do the live thing. Uh, I'm turning to your new single. Uh, yeah, uh, mm-hmm. yeah. You listen to it. It's a great great track. Uh, commentary on new artists, ghostwriting. Um, what's your or is there what's what's kind of your your main issue are with 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 ghostwriting. Uh, have you? I mean, because yeah, there's obviously two. Steps. I don't have an issue, but we're supposed to have an issue right. because of the era we come from. But I'm open minded to every era. I look at it across the, forty years of hip hop across the board, from party records. The first 10 years to street records, the second 10 years to strip club records, the third 10 years to trap house records, the past 10 years. That's 40 years. Everybody's going to do things a different way. You know, Mm -hmm. the first 10 years was like, who did you come up through to get on the mic? Right. Do you know Herc? Who put you on? The second 10 years was on the street mafioso stuff. So it was like, uh, I don't know about that. But that's that was the move. It was a change. The third 10 years was, we got to make records for the club. Laffy Taffy, Drip Club. That's where people shifted. So it was like, and then these 10 years with the trap, you got producers, you got ghostwriters. I mean, you've had ghostwriters. I mean, Kaz wrote yeah. Rapper's Delight. He just didn't get the credit for it, you know? And he wrote a lot of the songs and a lot of the routines for his group, you know? So, in effect, he was a ghostwriter, you know? A respectful ghostwriter, a respected ghostwriter, before you called it that. Right. Um... But what I like as an author is making these associations. So I associated in my part of the record, what I'm saying, ghostwriter in your bedroom, putting words in your mouth. I'm digging up your grave, earworms coming out. Because in Germany, they call earworm, they call melodies earworms, or catchy records earworms. Right. They get stuck in your ear. And I like the concept of a ghostwriter, and I was likening it to like, mystery or ghost stories and I was like that's interesting so there's a person in the room that you don't see you don't see the name he's anonymous or she's anonymous who's telling the artist what to say what would that be like in a film like you know like a ghost that comes in the room and like sits down with a Ouija board and is like give me that hit record you know I was playing off of that the way Vincent Price was set into Michael Jackson's Thriller. Right. And then um, Mike went more in MC mode and was like, 
expressing why where has he been all these years is he writing is he over enlightened is he trying to make sense of the excitement is he trying to make it right or righteous i took a break to get it right some of these cats really try to dim my light all i wanted to spread love on the mic and then he goes into the ghost right line and it's just like look i don't want to be involved in that mess the, the controversy and all of that. I just came in to spread love and put it down. You know what I mean? Right. The way, the way this thing was built. So we're supposed to hate on ghostwriting because of the era we come from, but we just see it for what it is. Why? Uh, um, it's, it's been what's your first track in ten years? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the uh, new single. Yeah. What what was the? Do you remember the first like? Do you remember when you first started to feel like that first line that you wrote that said to you, "All right, we gotta we got something here. We gotta release something now." Mm-hmm. Uh, do you remember where you were? What you what you actually wrote that might not be on the song. It might be on the album itself. But do you kind of remember that moment? Uh, for me, it was Mike's verse in that song. Yeah. Because I had a different creative process. I was writing all the hooks first and producing the music and structuring it. And Mike would come to the studio and just hear, like, the sketch structure with the hook and then go in another room and write. And when he recorded that verse, that was one of the first songs he recorded. It was like, whoa! This album's going somewhere already. You know, that says it all right there. You know, it's like, you can't have an album without saying that. Right. His verse and yeah. You know, and my verses came after the fact. I mean, I had some sketch verses in in the beginning. Just, just sparring, you know, just to spark stuff. You know, but Mike's verse gave that song the direction it needed and his subsequent verses too and other songs gave those songs the direction they needed so you know it's it's we don't preach we don't hate right and so that one line all i want is to spread love on the mic full stop done done that's it. You can't say no more than that. Right. It's like no argument. This is my intention. Right. So when I step in the room and we start doing interviews and you start asking me, well, what do you think about hip hop today? And there's this argument about old heads versus the new. And it's like, listen, listen, I'm looking at this whole thing and this is what I'm bringing to it. Mm-hmm. And we not old school bitter. We not hating. Got love for the whole 40 years and we got understanding for it. Are you still, has the creative, how has the creative process changed? Are you, I mean, with this album, uh, are you guys both in studio together writing? I mean, is it, has it always been the case? I mean, obviously now we're at a time where, you know, you email, I do a verse, email it to you or FD. FD, Again, bless Mike. He was like, I want to be in the same room. (laughs) (laughs) And I feel him on that. You know, it's like, we can't do the email thing. 
We got to be in the same room. And I work with a lot of uh, artists and producers and collaborate that way. But I make sure it's organic. Hmm. I don't just get a cold beat, go in my own zone. No. You, we're going to at least talk on the phone. I'm going to do some homework on your project. I'm going to talk to you, maybe even have a coffee, hang out, get a vibe. And then I'll go try something on my own and send it to you. Nine times out of ten, when we do the final takes, we're going to meet together in the same room. Right. So it might not start off with everything is all in the same room. So I know how to do it that way. I got, I've got, i adapted that to that. But, um, yeah, we were together in the same room. I mean, I, I, like I said, I did a lot of structuring and changing verses, my verses, and moving things and his verses around just to see the feel. But when he steps in the room, it's like you get that updated sketch and then we can rework, even rework that together. So it's better. It's still better to be in the same room, I think, okay. because things spark on the spot. You know, you can do coloring by the numbers, throw it up on the grid and make it like, okay, all the parts that make up the body of a song are there. So it's a song. No, there's the vibe too. And is that, imagine there's, you know, you, yeah, you like, you write a game plan and something might come up that's not even on the game plan. It just kind of pops up because we're in the same room together. Yeah. I mean, dude, like a year and a half of this, this project was two years. A year and a half of it was structure, 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 structure. And then I took like two months off to do some personal training to get my fitness levels up. And six or seven verses each record. In the last month, I got to like the sixth, the seventh take. And I just grabbed the mic and just raw. And that's what's on the album. You know, all that vibe that was pent up inside, it just came out. Rawr! You know, and that was from being in the room with Mike, vibing with him whenever he came in. Going home and listening down. Typing his lyrics out and reading them. Getting these, f- f- and and then my personal training. Because, you know, the fitness levels, the running, I do a lot of boot camp and boxing and, and it just gets your wind right, you know, you just feel stronger, you know, and when you grab the mic, you, you got more power. So at that point, you're going beyond structure and coloring by the numbers and you put more energy and pulse into the music and that's what creates the vibe. Are you, when you're... Fitness, are you thinking about the music at all? You try to clear that out of your no, mind as well. No, no, it's it's um, it's completely connecting with your body. You can't think about. There's no. I overthink sometimes, and my cure for that is boot camp. It's our training on the sand, and it challenges you so much. You have to. Be more conscious of your body than your creative ideas. That's my final question. Uh, 
you know, so much of people's or groups, artists, legacies, I think, are defined by other people. Uh, but if you were to kind of define your legacy or the Jungle Brothers legacy, what would it be? We remain true. We remained authentic to the early days of what I said, the band, the DJ sound system, the jam. Essentially, we could jam out with no records. We could jam out the lyrics we have memorized to all these albums to a brand new mix of beats. Sometimes we do that live. And people just go, wow, the energy. Oh, man, the live show was incredible. Like they didn't know that was going to come out the box because they've seen so many shows where the energy is not that high. And it's all based on the hit records. Right. You know, and some of them are being lip synced and some of them are being processed with the auto tunes, which is a sound. It's a thing, but it's based on a production and a presentation, you know, whereas we come from the, the, uh, the, eth the, eth the ethics of like the DJ who's got to rock the crowd huh. and the band that's got to command their instrument. That's what made, makes the Jungle Brother legacy. Other people see it as we're the first ones out the gate on the native tongue era, the golden era. And that is a part of our legacy, too. Um, but when you strip that away and you get to the core, it's what we do live. The chemistry we have on stage, the energy we put into the music, whether you know it or not. That creates the vibe in the room. Makes me want to see a live show, which I have not had a chance to see, uh, but I hopefully will once my kids get let me sleep. Uh, no sleep till Brooklyn. No. <laughs> uh, Bam, Jungle Brothers, uh, it's been an honor. Thank you so much for being on the library with Tim Monica. Thank you. New album, Keep It Jungle. Always. Nice. Thanks for having us. Hope to be back again soon. Thank you.